Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark of Mega Brands and excited for today's conversation with uh, David Miller, the CIO and Senior Portfolio Manager for Catalyst Funds, Rational Funds, and Strategy Shares, I'm guessing. And, and just a, a um, little disclosure, as many of you know, I am a part of the sub-advised team for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. We focus on consumer spending trends through uh, big mega brands and emerging mega brands. We are, the fund that we sub-advise is owned by the, the Rational Funds and Rational and Catalyst are, and David can, I'm sure, cl clear that up, but you know, let's call them sister companies for lack of a better phrase. Um, so we, we like to do some, some conversations, not only about the consumer theme, but also about interesting ideas across mutual funds, as well as ETFs. And I love some of the, the new strategies that they have under strategy shares in the ETF market. So we're going to talk today about two of the strategies. One's called the NASDAQ seven handle index, and the other is the strategy shares gold hedged bond ETF. So without any further ado, David, how are you? Doing great. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. You want to just, uh, how do you describe the catalyst, the rational, the strategy shares? Because I'm sure I probably didn't do a great job and I'm part of the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly we're, we're usually just doing it one at a time. So uh, there, so the, there's, I guess, uh, two companies that you described as sister companies, which is, I think is a good way to describe it, which is catalyst and rational mutual funds. Uh, myself and Jerry Slodgy uh, started up with uh, Catalyst Mutual Funds back in uh, 2006. And then about five years ago, we acquired uh, what is now Rational Mutual Funds when it used to be run by uh, Huntington Bank and was called uh, Huntington Mutual Funds. Uh, we took over their funds, rebranded it, brought on board some great sub-advisors uh, like yourself uh, to uh, ramp up uh, that, that fund family. 
And part of what came with uh, Huntington Mutual Funds when we bought it was Huntington Strategy Shares, uh, which we've now just rebranded uh, Strategy Shares, which is their ETF group, uh, which is where our group of uh, ETFs uh, are. So they're under the, the Rational Funds umbrella, but both Catalyst and Rational Funds and Strategy Shares are all owned and run by the same people, kind of just different brands under the same company, kind of like a Procter & Gamble type of situation. Got it. A little house of brands. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know it. Well, you know, I mean, as you know, I talk to advisors every day with, with the brands fund and, you know, I'm always checking people's temperature on what they're really excited about, what they're nervous about, how they're allocating across their excitement and maybe their concerns. And, and obviously I'm constantly getting the, the question and the concern about interest rates and, and how they how they will potentially change their allocations and on the bond side as well as the equity side and then maybe on the alternative side as as an answer to some of those problems on the traditional equity and and fixed income side. So, you know, cer certainly as as rates have been falling for what thirty five or forty years, whatever the number is, since the peak in the early eighties. You know, we're about, we've squeezed about as much juice out of that fruit as we can probably get, which just means that interest rates have probably, you know, they're, they're certainly closer to the bottom, which means traditional fixed income probably isn't going to have the income that it once had. It probably isn't going to generate the total returns that it's, that we're all used to. And, and I would argue it might not even provide the lower volatility experience with the trend of lower rates. So, you know, as, as, as advisors and their clients age, the, 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 the problem is people's, you know, their appetite for risk goes down as they get older and, and the safe part of their portfolio may not offer the same safety that it once did, which is forcing advisors to think about what do I do with at least part of some of that traditional fixed income allocation. Um, so, you know, I, I think these two strategies are, are pretty, pretty timely. They do things very differently, obviously, but if you want, let's talk about the, the NASDAQ seven handle uh, ETF first, because that's, it's pretty interesting. Cause you know, I was reading the fact sheet and, and the website and you know, it's, it's, it's doing, it's doing the high income thing and the total return thing uh, in, in a lot of different ways, which I think is pretty cool rather than just kind of being very directional in one asset class you're kind of a, correct me if I'm wrong, like a multi-asset strategy within this that's that's allows you to win on, on a couple of different levers. Yeah, that's right. And really what we're doing with that HNDL ETF is trying to directly address the need that investors have and really what their want is. You know, there's obviously the building blocks that go into a portfolio. And then there's the reason that investors get involved with investing for the first place, which is usually they need to make money on their money. Uh, so here, what we're doing is we're seeking to target a 7% total return, which we pay out as a 7% yield and try to do that in such a way with a minimum amount of volatility and a minimum amount of drawdowns to accomplish that 7% total return or slightly higher. And that's basically, you know, exactly what that fund's done. It came out at $25 a share. Uh, back in January of 2018, it's paid a 7% uh, distribution yield uh, every month uh, since it launched. 
and uh, it's grown the NAV slightly and maintained a, a steady NAV along with paying a consistent uh, dividend distributions or distribution yield, at least in this case, uh, one twelfth of seven percent each month. So kind of neat fun from from that perspective, and you know certainly addresses what you're getting at with yields at you know two percent, unless you're uh, able to uh, retire with an extraordinarily large net worth, it's pretty hard to retire on 2%, but at 7% makes that a much more achievable goal for many investors. Now, is this, uh, does this, what's the rebalance feature of this one? Is this a, a quarterly thing or every six months or how does that work? So every month uh, the fund rebalances, it's done systematically. It's 50% uh, balance of two components. First component is 30% large cap US equities, 70% Barclays bond ag. And then the second half is run through this partnership that we have with Dorsey Wright. It's known as their Dorsey Wright Explorer portfolio. And what that does is it's a tactical asset allocation model that uh, allocates to those asset classes that Dorsey Wright's relative strength models indicate are most likely to do well in that environment. So you know, if you're in a growth environment where everything's going to go well, it's going to tilt more towards growth and income stocks, MLPs, REITs, preferred stocks, high yield bonds, you know, things of that nature that do well in a growth environment. Whereas if you're in a more recessionary environment, it'll tilt towards those asset classes and strategies that do well during recessions, you know, investment grade corporate bonds, mortgage bonds, covered call strategies, uh, things of that nature. And the neat part is when you blend uh, that fixed allocation core portfolio with that Dorsey Wright Explore portfolio, you know, the math tells you if you can put together two non-correlated return streams, that the combination of those two should have a 40% better risk-adjusted return than either side all by itself. Uh, so those two strategies working together have really kind of been a, a match made in heaven for uh, the smooth and consistent returns that we've had in that HNDL ETF. Yeah, I was just looking at, uh, at, at some of the, the other very, very popular mutual funds. And I mean, listen, I, you know, Lord Abbott, short duration, you've just crushed that one. And, and people use that as a big income generator. PIMCO, the, the PIMCO income return, which is another great fund that's, you know, broadly in use across all advisors. Typically, you've done exceptionally well compared to that one. Even a Loomis strategic income, you know, I used to, I used to work at Natixis and Dan Fuss and his team I always love the, you know, 70% fixed income that's multi-asset with 30% equities. You've crushed that one too. Um, and and you're, you're darn close to just a pure equity. You know, uh, the, I use the, the uh, S&P high vol low div ETF, but I mean, it's, it's performed really well. And it's, it's had a fairly stable, like you said, NAV throughout the whole thing, which at the end of the day, if you can keep your NAV stable, which keeps you sleeping at night and you can, and you can clip your monthly return uh, from, from your high income, that seems like a pretty interesting you know, addition to a portfolio. And it, I, I was looking at your asset rates. You guys have been really uh, successful at raising assets in that thing over the last couple of years, haven't you? Uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, grown quite a bit, a uh, little north of 560 million in AUM today and continuing to grow pretty quickly especially over the past year. Okay. I mean, it's nice. I'm looking at the holdings. I mean, you really do have some great diversification. You got some total bond market, 
with with a big uh, with a big allocation there. But you got mortgage-backed securities. You got some actively managed fixed income. You got some high yield, investment grade, preferreds, taxable munis. Plus, then your 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 equity component, which is you know large cap utilities, REITs, dividends. It really is kind of a a, a, a go anywhere type of strategy. And now with with the monthly rebalance. Does that help? You know, I know sometimes when you're when you have a, a momentum component, sometimes there's this lag uh, until the next rebalance. Does the monthly the the monthly rebalance should that help? Sometimes, you know, if if you get a pivot from growth to value or you know different style factors that move, should that monthly help out rather than a quarterly or every six months where you you're stuck in the asset class that was winning and then has turned south a little bit? Was that the yeah, absolutely. Certainly being monthly, we found is kind of the Goldilocks spot. You don't want to be too uh, re too often in your rebalance and incur a lot of transaction costs. Uh, but you also don't want to miss the boat and wait for a quarterly or even annual rebalance. We found that once a month rebalance is really the sweet spot. Okay. And, you know, any ideas on, you know, inside of the, let's use, let's use just typical, you know, a typical 60 plus client working with their advisor or without, I know there's lots of self-directed people that like some income too, as a good balance to their growth stuff. Um, you know, how much inside of a portfolio, understanding that everybody has their own risk profile and, and all that stuff. I mean, what do you think is a, is a decent allocation to something for, you know, for somebody's overall fully diversified portfolio? Yeah, I mean, Eric, it's a great question, but it's also a bit of a tricky question to answer, just given that nobody wants to say 100% is the, the right answer. But really, the way that we uh, design the solution is if somebody wants a 7% return uh, with the best risk-adjusted return to accomplish that, that's exactly what this fund was designed to do. And it's already extraordinarily diversified uh, with all those asset classes that, that you mentioned. So anything you really do to change that will either make it more aggressive if it's more equity or if it's more bond, it'll uh, uh, lower that uh, return target a bit. So certainly if somebody wants a higher total return and you know they're uh, in their 30s and uh, wanna just be big on tech stocks, sure, this, this may not be the uh, huge component of their uh, portfolio, but for somebody who's really kind of looking for a simple one size fits all, how do I get a 7% total return and the smoothest ride to accomplish that, that's really what this uh, is designed to, to address. And, you know, for, for that reason, I, I, it can make up a pretty substantial piece of a, a portfolio. Right. For, from a risk profile, would, would this, I don't, I don't have the risk profile in front of me. It's, this has been around a little over three years, right? So you have a three right. year, you know, kind of what the risk, it, it would this thing, uh, at least in the last three years, would it look like uh, high yield, from a total risk metrics, or would it be a little more equity beta? I mean, you have any idea where on the risk spectrum this thing would show up? Yeah, so, so when you, you look at it from that perspective, especially like in a, a March of 2020 type of environment, it certainly held up significantly better uh, than both uh, high yield and uh, the S&P 500 in that period. You know, S&P was down like 12% plus in uh, March of 2020. Uh, whereas we, we've done a good bit uh, better than that. We were down about six and change in that period. Uh, funds done 8.79% in 
uh, annualized over the, the past three years. So it's kind of modestly uh, outperformed uh, that, that total return uh, that you would uh, get from uh, our 7% target. So, you know, it's certainly been fortunate that we've kind of outperformed uh, the overall goal. But the issue with both equities and uh, also the, the issue uh, with the S&P 500 is their equity risk or their credit risk, right? Which both sell off in a big way uh, when you have a significant market downturn, whereas uh, interest rate risk or bond risk, uh, that's not like your high yield bond risk, but blends uh, duration and uh, credit risk, that held up significantly better both in a March of 2020 type of environment and also uh, in a, a 2008. Uh, so you look and we've been able to, you know, outperform something like uh, high yield bonds, which have done about 5.93% uh, over the past three years, but with significantly smaller drawdowns in the, those really significant sell-off periods. And it really is because of, you know, going far out on the efficient frontier uh, to try to blend our equity risk and our uh, duration risk, which tend to have some negative correlation to one another, a bit of a yin and yang kind of relationship uh, that has enabled them in some ways to hedge one another. So, you know, I, I think that's why it's really been able to, uh, you know, really do what we set out for it to ultimately do. Okay. Yeah. And I'm just looking on Y charts. The, you know, it looks like the beta on this for the last three years has been like a 0.42. So yeah, you're, 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 you're half as, as volatile as the equity markets and, and you have, you know, you have some credit exposure that has some equity type of beta, plus you have some equities. So that's, I mean, I don't know that you can, I don't know that you can ask any more of, of a strategy to have that, that lower vol experience thus far with super high income, you know, at a time when people are starved for income and, and willing to, to, I mean, it's amazing some of the yield chasing that I see out there that doesn't seem to make much sense. But with, within this strategy, I mean, from the from the diversification, you know, part of that ledger, it seems this is, you know, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Any anything in particular else you want to talk about on on this one? I mean, I think we covered a lot of the, the key bases there, but but really kind of the secret sauce is, you know, diversification, not in the way where, you know, if you own 500 stocks, you're diversified because, you know, if you own 500 stocks and the S&P is down a lot, you're still down a lot. Uh, but the idea here really is if you can diversify the source of the risk of your strategies, then you should really be able to get a dramatic lift in your risk adjusted returns. And if you think about it, bond risk, you know, like bond aggregate risk, that did exceptionally well in a period like a March of 2020 or Q1 of 2020 or 2008, for that matter, when equities got slammed, or if you think about, you know, a year like uh, this year, where equities have done exceptionally well, or like in 2013, where equities have done exceptionally well, that tends to be when bonds do least well, uh, when rates go up. So by blending those two risks in an attempt to make those risks symmetrical and balanced, we think that's really the, the sauce that you need to drive that type of uh, outstanding risk-adjusted return where you're not really dependent on the market doing well or poorly uh, to drive your total return, but try to have the steadiest sailing throughout. Right. And I, I mean, you know, the, the reality of this industry in, that I see anyway is more and more advisors are, in particular are, you know, they want, they want strategies 
that have some sort of, you know, kind of portfolio autopilot restructuring inside of them rather than them trying to figure out, do I overweight converts or high yield? Or is this the time to really pull back and own long bonds because things are, are a little nerve wracking? It's just nice that you, you have all those assets that are kind of part of your investment, you know, your investment universe, if you will, but you're, you're kind of systematically changing those allocations every month. So as the market changes and the environment changes, so too will a lot of the exposures. And then an advisor doesn't really have to worry about it. They just know that the income component is there and the, and the rebalancing feature is there. Exactly, that, that's the goal. So, so the, this next one is really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the brands guy, right? So I, I rarely don't, I don't analyze things like, you know, metals too often but I see it in every one of my quarterly earnings reports with my consumer stocks. You know, people are talking about high input costs, rising inflation, wage pressures, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and whether that's transitory or not is, is anybody's guess, but there, there's some other new interesting ways to maybe, you know, carve out some allocation and, and reduce some of the risk to this bond allocation. You guys created the, the Strategy Shares Gold Hedged Bond ETF. Tell me about that one because that's fairly new. I think that was started in May of this year. So um, it, it, it's some, I don't think there's anything like that, that uh, on the market currently, is there? No, there, there's nothing really out there like it, which is why we felt uh, the compelling need, need to launch that particular fund. And the idea behind it is there, there's really a couple camps outside of equities. You know, when you're comparing uh, bonds and gold. Uh, so the, the benefit of gold is it does a remarkable job of maintaining its purchasing power uh, over time. It's been around for millennia and it's really effectively maintained its purchasing power through very long stretches of time, both good and bad periods. But there's a problem with gold. Even though it does a great job protecting your purchasing power, what it doesn't do is it doesn't generate any earnings. It doesn't pay yield. It doesn't have any dividends, nothing of that type of nature. So if you own an ounce of gold 10 years ago and you own an ounce of gold today, even if the price of that gold goes up, it didn't give, give you any dividends, didn't give you any interest, didn't give you any yield, nothing of that type of nature. You just own the exact same ounce of gold that you owned uh, 10 years ago. It's not a productive asset, but it does maintain its purchasing power. Whereas you look at bonds and there's a little bit of the opposite. Uh, they consistently pay yield. They do do a good job of maintaining uh, their price over time generally, uh, but they do a really crummy job of maintaining uh, their purchasing power, especially during times of significant inflation. And like you mentioned, whether that inflation we're seeing right now is transitory or persistent, either way, persistent inflation or transitory, 2% type yields that you get in the bond market, that's just not enough to offset the rates of inflation we're having uh, today. If you look at it, when you look at the increase in housing prices over the past year, stocks, uh, gold, uh, wh what have you, uh, they've all been increasing above that uh, interest rate that you get from a typical corporate bond, which begs the question, why the heck do you want to own a corporate bond if it pays a yield that's less than the, the rate of inflation? It just doesn't really, frankly, make a whole lot of sense. You'd be better off uh, spending the money earlier. 
So, so what's the solution here if you actually need income, but you also need to maintain your purchasing power? And our thought here with this gold hedge bond ETF is you hedge out uh, the inflation risk against your portfolio of investment grade corporate bonds. So we do a one for one hedge of the dollar exposure uh, that we have in a portfolio of investment grade corporate bonds. And we hedge that exposure to the price of gold. Uh, so that people can get their yield, they can get their interest from their bond portfolio. Uh, but 10 years later, rather than having 30% or more of their purchasing power getting eaten away by inflation, they maintain that purchasing power by having a persistent exposure uh, to gold, which can be a phenomenal hedge against uh, those uh, inflation risks. So that's really the goal here is we want to try to make it so people can have it both ways. They can get their yield from bonds, but they can also maintain their purchasing power through gold all in one seamless ETF. And that's really the idea behind that GLDB ETF. Okay. And the, the bond component is that, are you buying treasury, you know, kind of aggregate futures or are you buying ETFs? How are you, how are you extrapolating the, or investing in the bond portion? Sure. So what we're doing is we're tracking uh, the Solactive Gold-Backed Bond Index. And what that does is it's a combination of two Solactive indices uh, paired together in one. So one part is their gold index, which tracks uh, the price of gold. Another half is Solactive's investment-grade corporate bond index, which tracks a portfolio of uh, investment-grade corporate bonds that represent the investment-grade corporate bond universe. And we own individual bonds uh, that are designed in a portfolio to track uh, the performance of the investment grade corporate bonds in Solactive's index. And then we overlay that uh, with the total return swap to the price of gold uh, to track the gold component of that index so that overall the fund uh, is designed to seek to track the Solactive gold backed bond index. So it's really a kind of index fund from that perspective. Got it. Okay. I mean, let's, let's, let's do a full bear case on inflation, meaning inflation just really rips. And, and that's, let's just say it's a three year phenomenon until the Fed decides that they're going to, they're going to halt that, that inflationary, you know, problem that we, that we have, and they probably created themselves. Um, sure. It, is, is there any, you know, kind of look back information that shows, you know, does, does the erosion in the bond side of the allocation get overwhelmed by the, the, let's assume gold is one of the things that does really well in that environment. You know, I'm guessing they're, it's not going to be a, a symmetric kind of, you know, as bonds erode a little bit, maybe your gold benefit, your gold hedge really you know, picks up the slack. I mean, is there any kind of, is it one to one? Is it three to one, you know, from, a, from an asymmetric opportunity, if we get a real inflationary period? Any way to know that? Sure. So I guess what you could do is you could kind of break it down uh, by piece and say, okay, what, what's it been like over the, the last 10 years? So if you looked at a portfolio of investment grade corporate bonds uh, over the past 10 years or so, uh, it's been around 5.24%. If you looked at uh, the price of gold over the past uh, 10 years or so, uh, it's uh, been around 
0.77%, but if you look at the five years, it's about 8.98%. And if you go back through 2005, it's been 8.93% uh, annualized for gold. So I guess the, the, the appreciation in the price of gold on a nominal basis has been a little bit of a bumpy ride. You know, some years it does better than others. Uh, but, but overall, I think you can probably anticipate just given what's been going on with quantitative easing that we could potentially have a bigger total return uh, from the gold component of the portfolio than from the bond side, because from the bond side, our best case scenario is really that we get the yield of the bonds, which is, you know, a couple percent, uh, about two and a quarter or so. Whereas when you look at the, the gold component, uh, the Fed increased them to money supply by 25% plus uh, over the past year. So, you know, if there's a 25% increase in the absolute amount of money, you know, that can equate to 20% plus type of increase in the uh, cost of the things that people need to live on, whether it be the, the price of uh, oil or real estate or, you know, th things of that type of nature. So, uh, I think we're really headed for one of those periods where there could be more significant inflation, almost similar to uh, the 1970s style commodity super cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be really interesting to watch. I mean, we've we've all uh, probably starting in 08, you know, with, with all the Fed, di di different Fed actions. I think the world, generally speaking, has been expecting more inflation and it just hasn't showed up yet. And so it, you know, gold has had a decent return, but good, good heavens. I mean, if there, if, if there was a real aha moment from the masses that inflation was actually here and persistent and rising, the amount of money that goes into those kinds of vehicles would be, you know, many times what it's currently been. Right now, people kind of use it as a just in case investment versus a holy crap i have to own this investment so yeah there i think there's certainly an opportunity for if there ever is an aha moment that this isn't just transitory there's a lot of money that goes into gold and silver and platinum and probably all the different commodities and as you know you know the commodity cycle has been somewhat of a laggard up until this year and but when commodities very similar to currencies when they tend to finally turn into a bull market, they tend to be very long lasting. It doesn't tend to be a one or two year type of phenomenon. They tend to be, like you said, the, the commodity super cycle. So, I mean, that's that's certainly, nobody knows the future if it's, if it's gonna be transitory and we're gonna stay in a nice tidy range for inflation. But I think it's probably a safe bet that inflation is gonna be trending towards the upper end of a range, making something like a gold, gold hedged bond ETF pretty a pretty interesting conversation for, for advisors or individuals. Yeah, like you said, nobody can say what that inflation is going to look like in the future. But when you do unprecedented quantitative easing, you know, you print over $4 trillion out of thin air and just add it to the Fed's balance sheet. You take another couple trillion dollars and just give it away at Congress uh, through PPP and stimulus. Uh, you, you buy hundred billion plus uh, at the Fed uh, and just monetize it of, of debt uh, on a monthly basis. You put all that together, a few trillion here, a few trillion there, pretty soon you're, you're talking some real money and it's got to lead to some fairly meaningful uh, inflation. Right. F from, a, from a rebalance here, is this, uh, 
this sounds like it's a pretty easy rebalance. So, I mean, are you, how often does that happen? And, you know, is it a one for one or, you know, let's say you got 50 million bucks in this tomorrow. Do, do you instantly go out and hedge using the, the, the gold futures one, one for one with the bonds or how does that, how does that process work? Cause I'm starting to, you start to hear the people are asking the right questions. I think before it was like, Oh, that thematic sounds, it makes sense. I don't really care to know too much about the mechanics of it. Now they're starting to realize, let's ask some questions about how the, 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 the food is being made, so to speak. So how does that part of it work? If you get some good flows? Yeah. The nice part of it is both sides are very liquid. So it's pretty easy to do. $50 million comes in today. Uh, we buy $50 million worth of investment grade corporate bonds that track that selective investment grade corporate bond index. And then we put on a $50 million total return swap uh, with BNP Paribas, in this case, to track the price of gold uh, one for one. And uh, it's pretty seamless in the way that we're, we're able to rebalance that. Okay. And and from a, you know, ETFs, and I always, I always laugh when I, I, I used to represent uh, an ETF or two. And I always remember people saying, well, man, the thing, you know, it's fairly new. I like the story, but it doesn't trade, you know, massive amounts of volume on a daily basis. And I, I have to remind people that nobody's ever asked me how many, how many shares, you know, were, were traded today, how much money I got into the brands fund as an indication of whether or not they should be putting money in the fund or if it was liquid enough. So I'm going to guess, you correct me if I'm wrong, if you had 100 million bucks to place, you're not going to have a problem. The implied liquidity of this thing is probably high. You don't have to worry about, it. even if it doesn't trade, you know, it doesn't trade a lot of volume as an early ETF that really shouldn't hold you back from owning it. Use limit orders or call your market maker or, you know, call, how would that work if somebody did want to place some and they were worried about the volume? How's that work? Yeah, so you look since we came out, the volume's been about like 7,400 shares per day. But to your point, the thing that really matters is what's the liquidity of the underlying assets that uh, the ETF is trading. And investment grade corporate bonds, at least from an index perspective, are exceptionally liquid. You could go out and buy uh, billions worth if you wanted to. Same thing applies to the, the price of gold. It's exceptionally liquid, uh, one of the most liquid futures markets. Uh, so it's a pretty easy thing for us to be able to handle, whether it's small size or big size. The money comes in, uh, we purchase the, the relevant exposures to uh, match that amount of new capital. So uh, it's not really an issue uh, as to the, the liquidity, given the underlyings are so liquid. Right. And it, it is, it's amazing that, I mean, I know ETF companies talk about this, but, but to the general public, People just don't realize that just because an ETF doesn't trade a lot of volume on a daily basis doesn't mean that it, they almost think it's a, it's a penny stock and it's not. It has nothing to do with that. So I, I would urge anybody listening to this, when you're looking at any ETF, there are some amazing, amazing strategies out there that, that may not trade you know, the SPY type of volume. Do not shun those ETFs simply because they're not trading a lot of daily volume that has nothing to do with it, assuming the underlying is a, a very liquid asset class or a group of stocks or bonds or whatever the case is, because you can get some great, you can get some great access to things that you usually can't in, in some mutual funds. And that might be a pain in the butt to do it yourself through some of these ETFs. 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And this is definitely one of those things where you almost literally couldn't do it yourself. Uh, you know, unless you had an ISDA with an investment bank, you could certainly go out and buy gold uh, or you could go out and buy bonds. But if you tried to do it in a margin account and pay, you know, some exorbitant 7% type of interest rate to some, some brokerage firm, whereas like when we do this, where we put on the total return swap through BNP, we're essentially getting a uh, third largest bank in the world's repo rates, uh, you know, which are pretty close to zero. So it's, it's really something uh, that, can't be done in an individual's uh, portfolio, given you can't go out and get an ISDA uh, with an investment bank and do, do swaps in, in an uh, individual portfolio. Right. Well, ask an advisor how fun it is to go out and buy bonds individually anyway. <laughs> it's yeah, not that so too. <laughs> That's right. Um, super cool. So, you know, just, just to, to close on this, anything in particular you want to talk about either one of these to, to close and and then I just have a few comments from, from, you know, an advisor's perspective, just to nail home, you know, kind of drive home the concept of interest rates and, and preparing somebody's portfolio for you know, what might be a, a not as easy uh, experience than we've had in the last 30 years. And, you know, when, when you as an advisor ha have been doing one thing your entire career and it's been working, sometimes it's hard to de-anchor from that. But, but when the data changes, sometimes you have to change. And so I urge everybody to, to be open-minded to some of these non-traditional, you know, just stocks and bonds, you know, type of strategies, because there's lots of ways to get good return and good risk metrics if you're willing to just look outside the box that we've been, we've been sitting in for the last three decades. Yeah, exactly to your point. Not to say that there's anything wrong with stocks. You know, stocks, I think, are actually a fine place right now. There's been significant quantitative easing, GDPs are rising, valuations aren't cheap, but they're, they're reasonable. And we have some very good quality companies in this country that are consistently increasing their earnings per share. The real problem in portfolios is not stocks. It's that people need a better solution for income. Uh, bonds that pay 2% and you get your principal eaten away by inflation and taxes, those numbers just don't work if your inflation rate is above and beyond the interest rate that you're receiving. Your principal just gets eroded by inflation over time. And you know, I think these are both kind of interesting ways to address that problem. The HNDL uh, solution is to target a 7% total return that can more than offset uh, the rate of inflation and deliver a significant real return. And that GLDB ETF is really designed so that people who do need to be in fixed income can make sure that their principal is hedged against the erosion from inflation. And that, that's really what we're trying to do is provide those great solutions uh, when people need to look beyond uh, the equity world for a good solution when bonds are really a problem today. Right. Well, I mean, you, I'm now thinking, unless, I, unless it's transitional cash in the brands fund, that I'm just waiting for a better opportunity. You know, if, if we get into a scenario where I'm feeling a little more you know, cautious and I want to hold some more cash, using HNDL in the brands fund is absolutely an interesting conversation. So, you know, this has been super helpful for me uh, as well. So HNDL on the NASDAQ 7 handle index, as well as the strategy shares gold hedge bond ETF, that's GLDB. Um, check both of those things out for the inflation, inflation hedging and high income strategies. And uh, David, thanks for your time, man.
Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.